I was a teenager, I would not have described myself as being hip when it came to music. I didn't listen to the latest chart-topping hits that were blasting on the radio. Instead, I indulged in the latest album from one of my heroes, Stephen Curtis Chapman. In the lyrics of his songs, I was in many ways mentored by a man who deeply loved the Lord. I saw a recent social media posting reminding me that his famous Great Adventure album turned 25 this last year. Stephen Curtis Chapman inspired me, and more so when tragedy came into his life. On May 17, 2008, Stephen and his family suffered a devastating loss. His five-year-old daughter, Maria, was struck and killed when Chapman's 17-year-old son was backing his SUV out of the family's driveway. The event was unthinkable, and it caused the family to enter into a season of deep grief. Now, at the outset of the message today, I'd invite us just to pause and recognize how unexpected, tragic, and heart-wrenching this is and was. Not only was his five-year-old daughter killed, but his son was the one who did it. It was an accident, but it now is something that he has to carry around with him his entire life. The pain was unbearable. As strong as his faith was, I suspect Stephen wondered why God would allow this to happen. And if you're in here today and you've walked through a season of trials, maybe you've asked that same question. Have you ever walked through a season of your life when you questioned the goodness of God? A season when you, something so tragic happened that you wondered if you could ever, if you're a Christian, sing worship songs again to God. You know, the truth is tragedy and suffering are part of our life in a fallen and broken world. Personally, I've watched beloved family members die suddenly and prematurely, my father in particular. I empathize with Stephen because I, too, walked through a season where I had to watch my child suffer. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you've recently lost a loved one, maybe a spouse, maybe even a child. Perhaps you're struggling with an undiagnosed illness or the loss of of a job. Maybe there's strife in your household. Whatever it may be, most of us are not far from suffering, no matter what our situation in life is. But there's often something I think we overlook when it comes to suffering and tragedy, and it's this. We often miss what God may be trying to teach us in the midst of that pain. Yes, suffering is a product of a fallen world, but what if God allows that suffering to happen so that we can grow, to refine and mature our faith? I think that's a tension that we all have to struggle with. Now back to Stephen's story. After much prayer and counsel, Chapman returned to, the, to touring to, for the promotion of his newest album. How could he possibly rejoice and sing praises to God after such a tragic loss, people were wondering? Well, Elizabeth, Diff, Elizabeth Diffin, a freelance reporter, attended one of Chapman's concerts and captured the experience this way. This is what she says. It's not often you leave a concert reflecting on the words of a song by a different artist. But as I exited the July 24th, 2008 Stephen Curtis Chapman event, the words of a Matt Redman worship song echoed through my head. Because you see, Chapman had opened the concert with Blessed Be Your Name just two months after his daughter died. Blessed Be Your Name was the first song that Chapman sang May 21st, the day after Maria's death when he wasn't sure he'd ever be able to sing again. Inspired by the story of Job, and at one point the lyrics repeat, he gives and he takes away. 
It's not a song about praising God in the good times only, but also praising him when we're in the desert place. Chapman says this, or said this, he says, As I sang this song, it wasn't a song, it was a cry, a scream, a prayer. He explained this to an audience of 5,000, and he said, I found an amazing comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. Chapman also shared that after Maria's death, he reconsidered the words to all his songs and whether he could still, still sing and believe them. Instead, losing his little girl brought the meaning of some of those songs into sharper focus. One example was the song, Yours, which addresses how everything in the world belongs to God. He said this, he says, in this song in particular, I, I, I came to a new realization. There's not an inch of creation that God doesn't look at and say, all of that is mine. And because of that realization, in conjunction with Maria's death, Chapman added a new verse to yours, and it goes like this. He says, I've walked the valley of death's shadow, so deep and dark that I could barely breathe. I've had to let go of more than I could bear, and I've questioned everything I believe. So even here in this great darkness, a comfort and a, lo- and a hope comes breaking through, as I can say in life or death, God, we belong to you. Amen. Now today, as you gather, we begin a series on the book of James. And if you've never read or studied the book of James before, I think you'll be struck by how direct the author is. James doesn't mince words. Rather, he tells it like it is. And in the words of, words of James... Uh, he calls us to engage and live out a counter-cultural faith. And ironically, the first topic he talks about is suffering, or as he uses the word, trials. And so my question this morning is, how should we respond when trials enter our lives? Because Stephen Curtis Chapman took the road less traveled and responded counter-culturally to his situation. He responded by praising God. And James will give us a similar message today. In fact, he gives us three things that we should do when trials come in our lives. He says we should rejoice at the opportunity to grow. We should seek the wisdom of God. And then finally, we should empathize with the situation of others. Now, this is not an easy topic, but it is a relevant one for us to consider. And so I invite you to join me in James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. And before we dive in, let's pray for God's wisdom. Lord, we come before you with a weighty topic at hand, Lord, as we consider suffering, as we consider pain in our world, and how we respond to that. And so, Lord, I don't know everybody's situation as they've walked in here today. I don't know the stories. I don't know um, what the last couple months or years have been like, Lord, but you do. And so I pray for a greater measure of your grace to come into our lives this morning, that you would soften our hearts to hear what you have to say to us today, that we would leave this place transformed, not afraid of the darkness, but knowing that you will walk through it it with us if we are there. We look to you and we ask that you would receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. James begins his letter this way in chapter 1, verse 1. He says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now the letter opens with some expected elements of a first century Greco-Roman letter. There's a sender, there's some recipients, and there's a greeting. However, the rest of the letter does not resemble a standard letter at all. There's no thanksgiving, there's no uh, real order to the body of the letter, and there's really not a definitive closing to it. And so for many, this has made James a really difficult letter to interpret. 
And the first verse raises two questions for us right off the bat. Number one, we ask the question, who is James? Well, James is Jesus' half-brother who was the lead elder of the church in Jerusalem. He takes a prominent role in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. In other words, this letter is written by the leader of the first Christian community. Now, secondly, we might ask the question, who is James writing to? Well, the most natural reading of this letter is that James is addressing Jewish Christians who are outside of Israel. And the reason they're living outside of Israel is because persecution had broken out in the first century. And even so that happened, the church continued to grow. Which means this, that when we are living in a day and age when it is difficult to be a Christian, we don't need to be afraid because God will continue to make his church grow. Since he and his readers had a Jewish background, it's not surprising that James's letter has an Older Testament flavor mixed with Jesus' teaching. In fact, James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Now, while reading James might feel like a bunch of disjointed messages, there's actually three themes introduced in the verse 11 verses that are woven throughout the letter. There's the theme of suffering and trials. There's the theme of wisdom. And then there's the theme of wealth and poverty. James will return to these themes over and over again throughout the letter. And so after a brief greeting, James jumps right in with the first topic, suffering. From the outset of the letter, James is encouraging us to take the road less traveled. When trials come our way, he says, don't sulk, rejoice, which really doesn't sit very well with our 21st century Walt Disney happy ending influence culture. For James, there's no fairy dust. There's no knight in shining armor, no happily ever after, just trials. So look at what James says in verse 2. He says this. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Wow. When you face trials of many kinds, consider it pure joy? What in the world does that mean? Well, this seems like a hard right-hand turn at the opening. He says, first of all, greetings. Oh, by the way, you should consider it joy when you go through hard times. Huh? What is James saying to us here? Well, let's take notice that he, he, he addresses this letter to brothers and sisters. In other words, James is talking to Christians in this letter. He's saying that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ should have a different view of trials and suffering. How? Well, we should respond by considering it pure joy. Now, the Greek words that are used here for pure joy suggest an intensity of joy rather than an exclusivity. And what I mean by that is this. When trials come in our lives, our natural response is probably not, yes, I am so happy trials are in my life. And if that is you, we might need to talk. (laughs) James is not saying that Christians will exclusively feel joy when suffering happens. That's way too simplistic. But... He is saying that there is a type of uh, intense, focused joy that is possible in the midst of trials. So let's be clear about one thing. James is not saying in this verse and advocating that Christians need to have a smile on their face when things go wrong. This is not a command to never be saddened by difficulties. Rather, joy is a state of contentment. We should not pretend that everything is great but we can still reflect our sorrow. We can still reflect on our sorrow while having joy in the Lord. In that way, joy is much different than happiness. Now, notice that other word, consider. The Greek word consider here is a command. And so what, it's a verb of thought rather than emotion. James is not commanding how we should feel, 
but rather he is commanding how we should think about our circumstances. Thus, we should consider and think about our difficult circumstances as joy. And then finally, take note of that word trials. That's crucial to understand. In this context, James clearly has a view of trials as an outward trial or process of testing. James is highlighting here that Christianity does not shelter us from adversity, quite the opposite. In fact, if you are a Christian, you should expect trials. And so James expands this meaning by saying that we will experience many kinds of trials, or other translations say various trials. He's got, he's got a very broad view of trials here, and his concern is not so much with the type of trial we are going through, but how we will respond to it. We are to consider it and then respond with pure joy. Why? Well, look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Did you catch that? First of all, notice the phrase, because you know. In other words, the reason we can rejoice is because of something we know. He doesn't say, well, maybe we can rejoice or perhaps we can rejoice. He says, no. He says, friends, we can be sure that God is at work here. These trials have come into our lives to test our faith and strengthen our perseverance. Why? so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. These verses uh, introduce the rationale of why we should count it all joy, because God allows trials for the purpose of testing us, or as scholar Craig Blomberg puts it, to prove us. He notes the implication here is of testing that leads to approval, approving of the worth of something. Whoa, that's deep. But do you see what James is saying? Our response to trials proves that our faith is real, whether it's worth something. In fact, the Apostle Peter says this about trials in his letter in the first chapter. He says, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. When trials come in our lives, we should not automatically run to a woe-is-me mindset. As Christians, we should see the purpose of trials, which is to strengthen our faith and prove it genuine. Because we cannot grow unless we are tested. And we don't know the beauty of the light unless we walk through the darkness. And when we walk this path, often God does greater things in our lives. In fact, a man who I believe is one of the greatest American presidents of all time is a good example of this. This man experienced many, many trials on his journey to the presidency. In fact, when he was seven years old, his family was forced out of their home and he went to work. When he was nine, his mother died. A painful trial indeed. He lost his job as a store clerk when he was 20. He wanted to go to law school but didn't have the education. At age 23, he went into debt to be a partner in a small store. Trial after trial kept coming his way. Three years later, this business partner died and the resulting debt took years to repay another trial. When he was 28, after courting a girl for for four years, he asked her to marry him, and she turned him down. Ouch. The sting of failure and another trial. On his third try, he was elected to Congress at age 37, but then failed to be reelected. Another trial. His son died at four years of age. Devastating trial. When this man was 45, he ran for the Senate and lost trial. At age 47, he ran for the vice presidency and lost another trial and another failure. But at age 51, 
he was elected president of the United States. I'm talking, of course, of Abraham Lincoln, a man who learned to face discouragement and move beyond it. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln, a man who learned to face discouragement and move beyond it, in the midst of the Civil War in 1863, established the annual celebration of Thanksgiving? Because Lincoln had to learn, had learned how important it is to stop and think about God in the midst of great difficulties. And here's the lesson we can take from Lincoln's life. Would he have had the resolve to lead the country the way he did during the Civil War if he didn't experience these trials and difficulties? Lincoln had to learn perseverance because the testing of our faith produces perseverance. In fact, if Lincoln hadn't persevered, who would have been president during the Civil War? I think we'll never know because he did and he accomplished great things. You see, perseverance has a role. The work of perseverance is to make us mature and complete, not lacking anything. While complete maturity is something we won't achieve in this life, we should strive for it because God wants us to be complete, not lacking anything. And in fact, that word complete summarizes what a Christian should become. It stresses the incremental nature of growth. Perfection is not simply a maturing of character, but a rounding out when more and more aspects of the righteous character are added to us. Church, what James is saying is this. If we want to be the Christians, the Christ followers God is calling us to be, we have to embrace trials. We have to embrace suffering. And when they come, we need to count it all joy. His counsel is very counterintuitive to our our spirits. In fact, when trials come, he says, rejoice at the opportunity to grow. Former Arkansas, Arkansas governor and pastor Mike Huckabee offers this story. He says, I know a pastor in Florida who used to have counted all joy parties every now and then. He so believed in this verse that when he would face a difficult situation, he would call his friends over to his house and say, hey, I want, I want you to come over to my house for a party. And they'd say, oh, is it, is it a birthday? And he'd say, no. And they'd say, uh, you got a promotion? And, they'd say, and he'd say, no. What's the situation, they would finally ask. And then he would say this. He'd say, well, I'm going through this incredibly difficult crisis right now, and I'm having a count-it-all-joy party. We're going to celebrate the difficulty because I know this difficulty is going to bring something of special value into my life. I don't know what it is yet, but I want you to come and count-it-all-joy with me. Have you ever had a count-it-all-joy party? Yeah, me neither. Because to tell you the truth, it's tough to consider it pure joy because it hurts. Yet it's important to realize that unless we go through some test, we will never know what our faith is made of. And that's the question for all of us, right? What is our faith made of? If it's strong, we will be able to count it all joy when trials come. But if it's not strong, well, I've watched many people walk away from the faith when suffering came their way. The response is usually this, how could a good God allow this? And it breaks my heart. Church, when trials come, we need not just to rejoice at the opportunity to grow, we also need to seek the wisdom of God. Oh, friends, that's the second thing. Seek the wisdom of God. Now, wisdom, you'll understand, is a key theme throughout James, but here in particular, it refers to the wisdom as it relates to trials. In other words, we should ask God, what are you teaching me when these trials come in my life? And as painful as this is, what am I meant to learn? 
In fact, look at what James says in verse 5. He says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Again, it seems like James is making a hard turn to a completely different subject. He was just talking about trials and suffering, and now he moves on to wisdom. But I don't think the two are unrelated. The key is noticing that word lack. James has just said that he wants us to grow and mature, not lacking anything through these trials and suffering. And then he moves on to the next verse and says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. In other words, you need wisdom to get through trials. Now, wisdom is a melding of the heart and mind, right? Wisdom means that it is a means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. In other words, wisdom is not merely knowledge of God, but the practical element of living out what one believes. And believe me, when life gets difficult, when your children no longer want to obey you, when your friends betray you, and when your marriage is on the rocks, you need wisdom. Notice here also that when we ask God, he gives this wisdom generously. Wisdom is not something we can earn. It is a gift that God gives to those who seek him. And what is it that will specifically be given to us when we ask? Well, one of my mentors and seminary professors, Craig Blomberg, asserts this. He said, does God promise to give us complete clarity on every situation, on every decision we might ever need to make? No, he promises wisdom, namely the ability to discern how he would have us live. This is not an unqualified statement that everything we will ask for will be given to us. For example... I may really want a Rolls Royce and to live on a beautiful house on a cliff in Malibu, but just because I pray for that does not mean that I will receive that. This verse is not teaching that. It is teaching that God knows exactly what we need and gives us exactly what we need. Blomberg continues, he says, rather that we will receive the practical knowledge and understanding we need to endure trials when we ask the God whom we know gives without hesitation. God gives us wisdom if we ask. Which begs another question. How should we ask for this wisdom? Well, James addresses that in the next verse. He says this, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Now, some of us in this room hear that statement and say, Well, then I could never ask God for wisdom because I'm full of doubt. Well, let me offer you an encouragement here. James is not demanding that a believer never question what God gives them. He is saying that we should never question the character of God. For example, maybe you're sitting here today and you're walking through an incredibly difficult situation, whatever that may be. You may be asking the question, why did God allow that specific thing to come into my life? And what he's saying here is it's not wrong to ask that question, but when we start to doubt the goodness, the love the sovereignty of God, it is this doubting that James objects to. If we doubt God's character, we will show ourselves unwilling to trust him with our lives. And this reality points to the difference between somebody who's a realist and somebody who's a skeptic. Or as Warren Wearsby puts it, he says, a realist is an idealist who has gone through the fire and been purified, but a skeptic is an idealist who has gone through the fire and been burned. Church, when the fire comes into our lives, will we allow ourselves to be purified by it or burned by it? Which road will we take? In fact, we're calling this series The Road Less Traveled, if you have noticed the setup here. 
Over and over again, James will exhort us to take the harder road because ultimately that will lead to God's glory and our good. Now, James offers a word picture here. He says, a person who doubts the character of God is like, is like a wave of the seas blown and tossed about by the wind. Notice that the wave he's talking about is not, is not rising in height and crashing on the beach like might be our first thought. It's actually talking about uh, on the swell of the sea, which is always changing its texture from moment to moment. Literally, wherever the wind blows, the waves change. And so what James is saying here is that we need to have an anchor for our souls. When we doubt the circumstances, we can doubt them. But we can't doubt the character of God because that is the anchor of our souls. If we don't trust God, how can we ask him for anything? James has a parting shot for the person who doubts in verse 7 and 8. He says this, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Because God wants to give gifts to those who trust him. And if you don't trust him, don't expect to receive things from him. In fact, when he's talking about the double-minded person here who's unstable, James probably has in mind the Old Testament theology of Deuteronomy 6.5, where we are exhorted to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not just, not just part of who we are, but all of who we are. This last verse is speaking of people who are unwilling to let go of the world and truly follow Christ. In fact, these are people who are torn between sin and obedience, and are reluctant to let go of the pleasure of the world for the sake of discipleship, because true discipleship always requires suffering. Theologian A.W. Tozer once famously said this. He says, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly unless he has hurt him deeply. Friends, are you someone who believes in the character of God, or are you a doubter? Is our soul anchored in the one who truly knows us, or are we double-minded and unstable? Because trials and suffering will reveal our faith for what it is. And if it is genuine, we need to ask God for wisdom about what he is teaching us and how to go through it. Now, doing so is difficult because we are following the way of the one who suffered for us. But we have a choice. And following Jesus is never easy. In fact, in, the, in his work, The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis writes this. He says, Jesus has many who love his kingdom in heaven, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire comfort, but few who desire suffering. He finds many to share his feast, but few his fasting. All desire to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer for his sake. Many follow Jesus to the breaking of bread, but few to the drinking of the cup of passion. Many admire his miracles, but few follow him in the humiliation of the cross. Because the way of the cross is the road less traveled. And everything in our world is screaming at us to take the easy road, to live for ourselves at all costs. And the question here is, church, will we choose to take the road less traveled? Because here is the truth. Asking God for wisdom is asking him to walk us through the bitter darkness of trials. Is that not what Jesus asked for in the garden? Not not my will, Father, but yours be done. Asking for wisdom means asking for the cup. Asking for wisdom means embracing the trials he brings into our lives and counting them all joy. Because it may be that only in the darkness can we learn what God needs to teach us. Let me share with you another story. 
Can you imagine what it would be like to lose three generations of your family in a blinding moment? How would you survive? Well, that happened in 1991 to a man named Jerry Sitzer, a professor at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. He, his wife Linda, their four children, and his mother Grace had been to a Native American powwow in Idaho. As they were returning home, a car with a drunk driver going 85 miles an hour swerved and crashed into them head on. In an instant, Sitzer lost his mother, his wife, and their youngest daughter. In his book, A Grace Disguise, which I highly recommend you purchase and read, Sitzer describes with searing honesty what it was like to be a single father, a teacher, a counselor to others, while he himself was a man bereft and torn, slipping into a black hole of oblivion and often simply wanting out. One night, he says, yeah, I had kind of a waking dream where the sun was setting and I was frantically chasing after it toward the west, hoping that I would catch it and bring it back. But it was a losing race. Soon the sun was gone, and he felt a vast darkness closing in around him. Now, shortly after this, his sister Diane told him that the quickest way to reach the sun is not to go west, but actually to turn around and head east and move fully into the darkness until one comes to the sunshine. It was such a counterintuitive insight that helped Sitzer find a road to recovery. It helps him choose the road less traveled. And here's what he wrote. He says, I discovered in that moment that I had the power to choose the direction my life would head. And so I decided from that point on to walk into the darkness rather than try to outrun it. To let my experience of loss take me on a journey wherever it would lead and to allow myself to be transformed by my suffering rather than to think I could somehow avoid it. That's pretty profound. Are we willing to walk into the darkness rather than try to outrun it? Asking for wisdom will lead to transformation, but it's never easy. Friends, when trials come, we should rejoice in an opportunity to grow. Yes, we should walk through the darkness of those trials and seek God for wisdom, but let's not miss one final crucial element of responding to trials. They teach us to empathize with the situation of others. In fact, verses 9 to 11 introduce another theme that will be prominent in James's letter, but again here they seem out of place. However, I think if we examine them a little further, we'll find a connection to suffering. Look at verses 9, 9 and 10. It says this, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. Now in these two verses, James introduces the topic of wealth and poverty. In verse 9, he's speaking to believers in humble circumstances, or the poor. He tells them they should take pride or boast in their high position, but the rich should take pride or boast in their humiliation. What in the world is he talking about here? Well, I think James is offering a role reversal. He's contrasting the situation between those who are poor and have little significance in the eyes of the world and the wealthy. Now, there's some debate about this verse and who exactly the rich person is, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, I think after study, I think James is writing to believers and he's talking to Christians here. After responding to their trials and, and receiving the wisdom they need from God, James now offers a very specific form of suffering. He's going to talk about the trial of poverty and the trial of wealth. Now, first, almost everyone agrees that poverty itself is a trial. In fact, in James's day, the poor lived in constant hunger and were poorly dressed. 
The issue is going to come up again in chapters 2, 4, and 5, so we'll, we'll, we'll dive into it then. But it's also likely these Christians were oppressed by rich landlords, forcing them to move and establish new homes and putting them in further financial debts. But second, James is also speaking of wealth as a trial here. Speaking to rich Christians, James is likely warning them against taking advantage of the poor, but he's also reminding them of the temptations that come with a wealthy life. He's saying it's very easy to become prideful and tempted by the allure of material possessions. James says to the wealthy, take pride in your humiliation. And he's reminding them essentially that their wealth and possessions will not follow them into eternity. The rich are prone to self-sufficiency, trusting their wealth and power rather than God. And James says this, don't take pride in yourselves. Take pride in me. In fact, the Greek term here that is, is, is also famously used in Jeremiah's exhortation of Israel in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, where he says, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they know and understand me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Do not boast in your accomplishments or your strength or your wealth. Boast in this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Boast in his blood that covers all of our sins. Boast that you know me, he says. And so James paints a further picture of riches in verse 11. He says this, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, James offers this illustration, finally reminding us that riches fade away. And if you place your trust in material things and not in God, they will ultimately let you down. The only one who can be trusted is God himself. Now, the question may be asked again, why does James include this section here? It certainly does seem really random. But here's another way of looking at it. By offering and pointing to two specific trials, James is letting both the rich and the poor know they are not alone. They both suffer trials. And while their trials may be different, they are called to empathize with each other. And isn't that true for all of us? (laughs) Because my trial may not be your trial. But we're all walking through something. All of us have ups and downs in this life, Christian, non-Christian. We might not be able to totally understand, but we can empathize. So friends, how should we respond when trials come in our lives? Rejoice at the opportunity to grow, yes. When trials come, seek the wisdom of God, yes. But finally, recognize that we are all walking through something, so let's empathize with each other. In other words, count it all joy as we seek God's wisdom and empathize with others. Count it all joy as we seek God's wisdom and empathize with others. Can we say that together? Count it all joy as we seek God's wisdom and empathize with others. Let me close with a personal story from one of my favorite authors and speakers, a woman named Nancy Guthrie. In fact, I recently heard her recount this story at a conference. It's both heart-wrenching, inspiring, and instructive. Because you see, after her daughter was born, Nancy knew that something was wrong. Though she named the baby Hope, there wasn't much to be hopeful about. She was born with club feet, extreme lethargy, 
and an inability to suck, among other problems, because Hope was officially diagnosed with something called Zawiger syndrome. It's a rare metabolic disorder with no treatment or cure, and most babies only live six months. At first, Nancy thought it was her fault, she recounted. She wondered if she didn't pray enough for a healthy baby, because she was immersed in church life and the Christian subculture, but she realized she wasn't truly taking time to listen to God or read his word. And so through this trial, Nancy recommitted to regular Bible study, and providentially, she happened upon the book of Job. At the time, she wondered if she could do what Job did. She recalled the passage where God said, My servant Job will be faithful to me no matter what. And as Nancy looked at Hope, her daughter, she thought, Here's my chance to respond to the worst thing I can imagine in a way that is pleasing to God. And Nancy's challenge is the same one that we face today. How do we respond when trials come in our lives? In fact, James concludes this section with a final exhortation in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trials because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And in the midst of trials, will we still love God with all that we are? Will we trust him? Because that is what this is all about. And and for Nancy, it wasn't easy. She had to trust God over and over and over again over the next few months, and her grieving didn't get any easier. Hope wasn't healed. The pain didn't lessen. But each day, Nancy tried to respond faithfully despite her loneliness and grief. And in preparing for her own loss, Nancy painfully sought to model a life of obedience, surrender, and trust in our great God. On her 199th day of life, hope took her last breath. Both parents must be carriers of the recessive gene for Zellweger syndrome to occur. And so the the Guthries decided David would have a vasectomy to prevent another pregnancy. Only one in 2,000 vasectomies fail, so the couple felt secure. But one year after hope died, Nancy was pregnant again. Prenatal testing revealed that their third child would also have Zellweger syndrome. Time Magazine interviewed Nancy and David for an article in which the writer compared their plight to that of Job in the Old Testament. And the article quotes an entry from Nancy's journal where she writes this, We often cannot see the hidden purposes of God, but we can determine to be faithful and keep walking toward him in the darkness. Named after the angel Gabriel, he was born on July 16, 2001, the same day the Guthrie story appeared in Time. And they knew what to expect. Their son's first day would be his best. And Gabriel died 183 days later. Now Nancy says, answering how or why begins with another question. Who? Who do you believe is in control of this world? Or what? What do you believe about God? Do I trust the character of God enough to believe he's in control And whatever he allows in my life will be ultimately for my good, not whatever he allows in my life is good. Nancy wrote, Can I trust knowing him will be good enough to make whatever it costs me to know him worth it? She says, I know a lot of people say, oh, I could never do that. She said, and David and I say, you couldn't. But if God allows it in your life, he will also give you the grace you need to respond faithfully. I'd like to invite the band to come up and have one more song for us. And while they come, I know you may not be facing something quite that horrific today, but the reality is this. Various trials will come your way too. 
And so, church, we come back to these two roads. When trials come in our lives, which road will you take? Will you choose the path of bitter resentment at God having nothing to do with him? Or will you choose to trust him with everything, everything that comes in your life? I hope it's the latter. Because in trusting him, you will experience his grace in the midst of trials. By trusting him, you will know his love more deeply. By trusting him in the midst of pain and trials, you will know more fully what our Savior experienced as he hung on the cross, displaying his love for us and earning the grace that we don't deserve. Have you experienced that grace? What should we do when trials enter our lives? Count it all joy as we seek God's wisdom and empathize with others. Let me pray for us.